Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to the season one finale of IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. Our guest for the first season finale is actor Morena Baccarin. You may know Morena from her roles as Vanessa from the Deadpool franchise or as Inara in cult classic TV show Firefly, but you will soon be able to see her alongside Gerard Butler in the soon-to-be-released film Greenland. Morena and I talk about where one should actually go in the event of a real-life apocalyptic event, her role on one of my favorite TV shows, The O.C., and the movies that changed her life. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to give us a star rating and leave a review because every single one counts. Thanks to DAC QVC for the most recent five-star review. Movies That Changed My Life will be back before you know it, but you should make sure to check out our new podcast alongside sports casting legend Dan Patrick in IMDb's That Scene with Dan Patrick, which is available now exclusively on Amazon Music. Thanks again for listening. Now here's Movies That Changed My Life with Morana Baccarin. Marina, how are you doing on this Wednesday afternoon? Just lovely. Thank you. <laughs> how are you? Uh, I'm doing well, um, especially well because I had the chance to watch Greenland yesterday. Oh, uh, cool. A very, very fun, apocalyptic uh, disaster movie with kind of a different spin on it, starring yourself and Gerard Butler. For those who haven't heard about that, why don't you tell us uh, what Greenland is all about? Sure. Um, it is a usual normal family going through some difficult times personally um the couple is you know separated and suddenly there's this apocalyptic event a, a meteor uh and several different fragments are hitting the earth and at first it seems like it is you know oh wow cool we get to watch it streak across the sky and it's going to fall somewhere in the ocean and then you start, slowly start to realize that the impact is a lot larger than people expected and it starts to decimate parts of the country and of the world and we have to run for our lives and we get this message from the government saying that we can go to a relocation shelter because they are selecting certain people who have certain skills to be able to rebuild civilization i mean it's very dark <laughs> so we have to find our way there but on uh, you know on our way 
uh, we discovered that they are not allowing anybody with any health issues and our son has diabetes. And so uh, we get kicked off the the military planes, uh, but we decide, you know, we're going to fight for our family and make it to, we've discovered that the, 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 the survival location, the bunkers are in Greenland, which in fact, they're are actual bunkers in Greenland. This is mm-hmm. not made up. Oh, really? I didn't uh, know that. So if there's <laughs> ever an event, that's where you head, always, Greenland. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, a, it's one of those, you know, really kind of like hold your breath through the whole movie. Um, exciting, exciting rides, but with a real, you know, heart element to it, uh, a family and real people and like, you know, real conflicts. Yeah, and something that I liked about the film was that most like disaster movies or apocalypse movies, the stories are focused on like how the government is going to fix it and like the scientists trying to save the world. Right. Um, right. But Greenland is there's almost none of that at all. Uh, it's almost entirely focused on you uh, and, and your family and sort of like what would happen and who are the people you, you would meet if you're trying to get out of like an apocalyptic situation. Um, that's yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool like unique way to to, to take like. The, the genre. Did that stick out to you when you're in the screenplay or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, in reading it, I don't typically go for these kinds of movies. I just really connected to the family and connected to the strife of this family trying to survive. Um, and I, I liked how realistic it was that it was kind of the minutia of like getting in a car, driving through, you know, people looting and fires and how do you survive? How do you get through this one step at a time? And um, I really enjoyed the relationship with the son and the husband and just the, the, re- the reality of, of that. It did not feel Hollywood, you know, it felt very, um, real. Uh, yeah. You said your relationship with your child. I mean, you have such a good, um, story arc throughout the whole thing. What's it like filming like a disaster movie, just like on the set where things are blowing up fire, people are yelling and you're working with like uh, a kid. I mean, is there some <laughs> sort of like, does the motherhood from screen also translate off screen? You're like, no, it's okay. Like this is how it works. Yeah. We, sometimes he would get genuinely afraid when they were like really loud yeah. sounds and explosions, even though we were obviously safe. But I kind of encouraged him to just use it, you know, and, and often um, when we weren't getting what we needed, I would just scare him a little bit and like say, <laughs> you know, this is real, like this is really scary stuff, you know, um, and it kind of, it really worked. I mean, I obviously was, I'm a mom myself, so I protected him and, and made sure he was okay. But it was, we sometimes had to manipulate the, you know, the the, the child fear to get the performance. Right. Because uh, you're being too too helpful, and then all of a sudden, like, no, you need to turn it up a little bit. It's not that. No, safe. totally. I mean, I hope I'm not <laughs> sending him to years of therapy, but I think he gave a really great performance. So. Uh, folks, again, if you like fun action movies or apocalyptic thrillers, be sure to check out Greenland once it's been released. So let's get to the movies that changed Morena Baccarin's life. You chose three amazing, amazing movies, uh, and this is the first time I actually haven't seen any of the picks. Ooh, um, yes. wait, you haven't seen any of them? I know, I know. And it's really embarrassing. And we'll start That's with the embarrassing. Most, yeah, we'll start with the most embarrassing one, uh, which is 1962's Lawrence of Arabia, which is, I have not yeah. seen. Big mark on like my movie nerddom cinephile list. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Lawrence of Arabia has an 8.3 out of 10 with 261,000 ratings on IMDb. 
Directed by David Lean, um, written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson, based on the writings of T.E. Lawrence, who was the real-life Lawrence of Arabia, starring Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, Alec Guinness, and Anthony Quinn. So thank you for having me finally watch this, this four-hour uh, epic film that's just been sitting in the back of my mind of being embarrassed not having seen it. Uh, but so tell me, when was the first time you watched Lawrence of Arabia? So the first time I watched it, I saw it, you know, like for, for school or... Um, I think it was in high school. They, my teacher showed an excerpt from it. We were so I was in a in a elective class about sort of metaphors and films, and I remember. I mean, we were watching it. This is high school, right? So like on a TV that he rolled into the room <laughs> right. with a VCR. So and seeing it that way, I could still tell how cinematically incredible that film was. And the excerpts that he showed only made me want to go go home and check it out, which I did. But I felt like I just did not experience the full scope and grasp of the film until it was re-released at the Arclight Cinemas, the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles did a, you know, um, a, a re-release of like, maybe it was like a new digital right. copy or whatever you want to call it. version of it. or something. Yeah. You remastered, exactly. And uh, they did it. I don't know if I'm making this up or not, but I believe with a live orchestra, although I could be making this up, it was really incredible. And uh, I'll never get out of my mind the image, the tiny, tiny image of Peter O'Toole walking across the desert through mm. that ginormous screen in this really still static shot, super far away of him just crossing that desert by himself. And it just, the images in that film stuck, stick with me forever. And of course, you know, he's just such an amazing actor. When I was watching this, I was just watching it, obviously not on the screen, just on my TV here. And it was unbelievable. Like every two minutes, I was just thinking, I cannot believe they shot this in 1962. Correct. And imagine watching that in the theater in 1962. I mean, just right. things you haven't seen before. I mean, obviously travel was not the same as it is today. There's no Google or the internet. So you can't even really get a glimpse of what the world looks like over there, like at that quality, at that scale. Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, the story is very simple in a way, but also speak to, speaks very much to the time. Um, but that the, the images in that film, like you really, there are very few films out there that have that kind of imagery and that kind of artistic, um, like you can almost feel, you can feel the desert. And that was that was just such a huge accomplishment for the time. Feel the desert, I love that. I always describe movies like where they have a lot of texture, like where, where yes. they take time where you can feel like the, whether it's the clothing or the props, or in this case, like the, the um, you know, the desert and, and where they are, like you can feel every little detail and all the grime uh, on the Peter grime, I was going to say that. Yes, you feel it. Yeah, yeah it, it really adds so much to it. You know, Lawrence of Arabia is such an interesting character because- Obviously, over the course of four hours, you're getting a lot of story built into him. Um, but his character really, like, like it's hard. Like, at times you're rooting for him, and then at times you're not, and you're right. changing on which side of the tribes you want to, like, root for. Did you kind of feel those tensions there as well of sort of whether it's, um, you know, whether he was a hero or he was a villain the whole time? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's one, you know, I love films that are slightly ambiguous where the hero is not always a hero and they're that are very, and it's very complicated morally. So I, I did appreciate that watching. I mean, I, I didn't see it obviously in 1962 and I wonder <laughs> how that was 
received, you know, um, obviously it did really well and was nominated for 10 Oscars and all this stuff, but you know, I, I like that he is sometimes, you know, he f***ed up and that he is not a, a great guy all the time. Um, and it's a compli- it's a complicated thing, what he's trying to do. And he's not always a hero. And I really do love movies that don't shy away from representing people that way. They're not even sort of trying to sugarcoat it in a lot of ways. Like when he's doing things that are incorrect, he has like a lot of pride in the moments. And like you, there are moments where he's kind of sees he's going about it the wrong way, but there's mm. never this full like moment where he's apologizing to everyone and saying, I'm so sorry for the way I, I treated you or, or did these things. It's sort of like a very internal, like you said, ambiguous sort of development and growth. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's a, you know, he's, he is grappling with his own, demons and that stuff is also really present you know and he's you 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 root for him because Mm -hmm. he's a flawed man and because he's able to experience so much suffering and you kind of like suffer along with him it's funny for a four-hour movie you would think you could probably not watch some parts of it but Mm -hmm. if you don't watch you miss like you know, you blink, you miss an unbelievably like epic but shot. You also miss the journey, right? Yeah. Like part of the journey is the pain yeah. of those four hours. Is <laughs> like part of the journey is feeling like you went through it all with him. I'm quoting my friend. We were talking about the other day. My friend Art. He said the movie, the movie is pure spectacle, uh, right? And it is from like <laughs> from like the music, the writing, uh, the cinematography, yeah. like everything about it. Just seems like. It, there's there's a reason why it's often touted as like one of the greatest, if not like the best film of all time. And it, it, yes. it's, it's pretty clear there. Um, we're in an age of, of remakes and, and things like that, remade miniseries for shows. Would you ever want to see Lawrence of Arabia like reimagined um, or anything like that with um, the new technology available today and all that stuff? I don't know. I, I don't think so. Only because it is such a timely tale. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was made the way it was made when it was made, I Mm -hmm. think is what makes it so spectacular. Right. So I'm sure that now with helicopters and aerial shots (laughs) and, and actually just drones, you could get some incredible, incredible shots, but would they be as impressive? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I I think it would be more about the landscape speaking for itself versus the filmmaking and the, you know, the actors. I don't know. I, you know, I, I kind of think it's held up and I don't know how you would go about remaking that. (laughs) Yeah. Like that shot where he sees Sharif Ali for the first time, um, where he's just, he's just like riding. You see like the little black speck of a horse Uh sort of riding towards him. And like that scene, you know, when I was watching it, I was like, man, if they did this now, it would probably be a green screen. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, you would know, like you said, you kind of suffer through with him because you know when they're filming that, it's like 100 plus degrees. Totally. Uh, you know, their film's melting probably somewhere like in the tent and they're like, we just need to get this shot right now and it's like a, you know, a five minute, you know, camel ride straight totally. towards them. And like the part of it really makes you feel like, you know, they put so much heart into the film and it, and it comes across clearly like uh, yes. in actors and in all, all around. I totally agree. Well, that was Lawrence of Arabia from 1962. Uh, if you haven't watched it, don't be like me and ignore it. Because or be intimidated or scared by the four hours, uh, because it's very much worth it. It is like incredible the whole way through. And what else are you doing right now? You know, we got a lot of time right now. Yeah, right <laughs> now's the time to catch up on all the classics uh, that you haven't seen before, and this that is one of them. Um, and here's another one again I haven't seen. This is 1993's The Piano. This is a 7.6 out of 10 with 77,000 ratings on IMDb. Written and directed uh, by Jane Campion, starring Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill. 
Um, and the story is, in the mid-19th century, a nonverbal woman is sent to New Zealand along with her young daughter, played by Anna Paquin, and prized piano for an arranged marriage to a wealthy landowner, but is soon lusted after by a local worker on the plantation. Um, this one, uh, Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin won Academy Awards for this film. Uh, back in 1993, or 94, I guess, was when the Academy Awards were for this movie. Um, so talk to me about The Piano. So I watched this when I was a very young actor. And it just, the story just really, really moved me. And it was, I was also exp really experiencing it because Holly Hunter wasn't really known, very well known at the time. So the majority of the actor, and Anna Paquin wasn't at all. So the just the majority of the actors were unknown to me, so I could really dive into the story. Mm -hmm. The performances are incredible. I will never forget, you know, because Holly Hunter plays a nonverbal woman, Her, it's so important for you to still be able to feel and know what's going on in her head. Mm -hmm. She chooses often, she signs with her daughter, but she often, with the, the men in the film and her husband, and and she just refuses to acknowledge them or speak you know, even in her way. And you still know exactly what she's feeling every time. And I was so impressed by that. And then there's, there's a scene where um, her husband finds out that she's been having an affair um, and and her he decides to chop off one, one or two of one of her fingers, one yeah. of her fingers um, which is a huge deal, obviously, for a piano player. That is the ultimate punishment. And when she figures out what's going on, she's struggling and trying to get up and he over physically overrides her and cuts off her finger and her daughter is watching and screaming and she is soundless and her face tells you everything. And it's just, I have chills like thinking about that scene. Like that is such incredible craft. And I also just love the music in that. It's so hard to do an original score for a film. And Michael Nyman um, did an incredible job with that. I, I, list, I used to listen to that soundtrack for years and years after. Mm. Every song is incredibly beautiful and and so emotional. And and Holly Hunter really played a lot of the piano, or, or all the piano for it, if I'm not mistaken. I believe she did, yeah, yeah. Um, and Anna Paquin was, you know, a little baby, and she learned the accent and, you know... It was, it was amazing. Yeah, Anna Paquin. I mean, right from the get-go, so the film opens up with Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin. Uh, they're arriving in New Zealand, and mm -hmm. you find out very quickly that um, Holly Hunter's character, again, is nonverbal. And the way that Anna Paquin speaks um, in defense and of protection of her mother and uh, is, right. is right from the get-go. It's like, man, it's, it's, it's amazing when you get to see young actors perform at that level in a movie like of this quality, like, I mean, this is very much a prestige film as people say. And, um, you know, Anna Paquin is a hundred percent part of the reason why it is prestige because she's so amazing in it. She really is. And you're right. She, she vocalizes her mom's feelings while simultaneously voicing her own dissatisfaction with it. And that I was, that I found so impressive for a child actor to be able to do. Something that stuck out to me, again, not having seen this until now, is that, um, you know, a theme with the Me Too movement and with the changes that have been coming in in Hollywood um, is that there has been a theme of women feeling that they don't have a voice. They feel like their voice has been taken away by toxic masculinity and things like that. Um, and back in 1993, uh, Jane Campion writes a story where a woman's voice, she literally has no voice. Yeah. Did that resonate with you at the time? Yes, it hugely resonant. And... It was truly a feminist film 
And even though, you know, it was the 90, early 90s, I still feel like it really made an impact. And a female filmmaker, you know, just coming on the scene, she, I think that was one of, was that her first film or one of her first films? Certainly the first one that she was recognized. Yes. For. Um, and I think that was huge, 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 huge. Um, but was that sort of a, a widely talked about thing, like in sort of the discussion around, you know, actors and stuff like that? Or is that as much as today there'd be like think pieces on the New York Times or, or the Washington Post if there was a movie that sort of talked about feminism in this sort of way? Was that sort of the top of mind as well? Or was that sort of just discussed on personal it levels? Was, I mean, I feel like it was sprinkled. I don't think it was like a concentrated conversation. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely a rare thing to, to see a movie, especially one that, you know, is indicated for Oscars that is directed by a woman. Um starring two powerful women, you know, that did not happen in the, yeah. in the early nineties. Very often. I remember when Thelma and Louise, like that mm. was another ginormous like upset. Um, but you know, I, I think it certainly gets those conversations started and they kind of, I think it solidified a female position in the industry a little bit more. And then it just kind of grows from there. I think in the early nineties, we were very far away from right, right. where we are now right. uh, in, the, in these conversations and, and awareness. The cinematography of this movie is beautiful. Mm. I mean, just, uh, you know, the waves crashing on the beach in the beginning and just the shots of, you know, yeah. the New Zealand bush and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's really, um, really beautiful to see. And uh, another thing where I feel like taking the time to go shoot on location there, it really helps uh, develop the area in which you are. Cause you really realize like wherever she came from before and then she's taken into, you know, really the middle of nowhere and it just really isolates her further from a world she had. And she had her uh, piano before and that was taken away from her. So she, like the isolation of her life just keeps getting, you know, tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh, and again, just like the location of it really adds to that depth. Yeah. And, and th remember this was a time when nobody had filmed there really. Mm -hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings hadn't come out <laughs> right, yet. Right. And it wasn't on the radar as this lush, beautiful, gorgeous place. And you're getting a peek into, you know, the natives of the area and, 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 and during a time of colonialism and, um, you know, the history of the place that nobody had really yet been privy to. And it's not the New Zealand that we've now seen. It's like the muddy, dark, pre, you know, buildings and, it, you know, it's just the be the beginnings of um, the British Empire arriving. Right. Um, and since it is in New Zealand, it features a very famous and proud Kiwi, uh, Sam Neill. So he did this movie the same year that Jurassic Park came out. I mean, what a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, th those one-two punches. Um, but so it was, it's Sam Neill and Harvey Keitel play the two male leads. They're, if I remember correctly, they're brothers in the film, right? Uh, no, they're more like business partners. and One has become a little more wild and feral. Yeah, yeah. And one guy become more accustomed with like the Maori people. Harvey Keitel is more assimilated to the land and the mm -hmm. times, and, and Sam Neill is a little bit more, you know, proper and all mm -hmm. that. And and I just love the difference between the two of them and the and in the performances and and that it was you know it's like a story about love and passion and desire and it's two middle aged people you know having mm. this affair and like it was real and it was raw and and you know the nude scenes were very like plain and matter of fact and like 
passionate in their rawness. And it wasn't, you know, like the sort of like beautifully lit, glamorous mm-hmm. Hollywood actors doing passion. You know, it was really, really real. And um, I think the, the, vis- the visuals that she created, you know, because you start with like the darkness, the grayness, the mud, they're in these dresses and they're like stuck in the middle of the mud and walking and disgusting. And, and as Holly Hunter's character starts falling in love with the Harvey Keitel character, who's kind of feral and wild and native. Um, and they finally consummate their affair. The little girl is watching through a crack in the wood, the, the, sla- the slates in the wooden house, and the dog starts licking her hand as she's watching her mom and this guy like be intimate together. And it, it's just like, you can hear the sounds of the licking of the hand and you can hear, you can you see through the eyes of this little girl, this like curiosity and fear and disgust and everything all at once as you're experiencing like this very, very, you know, sense sensory mm-hmm. thing, you know, it's, it was really, really incredibly done. Yeah. And then the very next scene, um, it shows, uh, Anna Paquin, the, the daughter running around the forest and she's like kissing the trees, right. um, you know, emulating what she saw. And then Sam Neill comes around and, um, and very a, tragic that she ends up being the one who tells on her mom. Right. Right. I mean, the love stories are so complex. Like if, if I was to tell someone, Oh, it's this, you know, period piece romance story, people would immediately put a story together in their head. Yeah. Um, just based off like the tropes uh, and themes that we see in period piece romances. Um, but the piano follows n- like close to none of it. Um, yeah. I mean, the way Sam Neill's character story, like, and maybe this is because I really know Sam Neill from Jurassic Park and like uh-huh. he's the lovable guy. You know, he's Sam Neill. He's like the nice guy. Uh, and his arc changes and Harvey Keitel, I guess, you know, I, on a personal, I recognize him from like Reservoir Dogs and sort of like a tough guy. Right. And right, you know, right, right, all, right. all these roles are very flipped in a way that I would perceive them normally. Um, that right. I was constantly taken like for a, a, a ride on like all the sort of emotional changes that went throughout. And then of course with, with Anna Paquin's character really um, acting, I think as a child would, right? Like she sees, um, you know, Sam Neill is more of a father figure. She really adapts him as, as a father figure and wants, you know, has a nicer house and all that sort of stuff and thinks like that's who she should be protecting, which I think is yeah. totally acceptable for a, a little girl in that age to, you know, be confused and what, what is right and what is wrong. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Did this movie, the piano affect the way you like approached roles or wanted to go after certain roles after seeing, um, like you said, a very strong, like feminist film, um, at a time where you didn't really see them. Yeah. I mean, I think it really solidified for me that you, you know, you can't always do this because there's a practical aspect to life and you have to work, but to just really, do things that you believed in and were passionate for and that allowed you to really flourish as an actor because of the connection to the material. And that was a big, big lesson for me. And we're, you know, we're not all so lucky to be able to find those roles that they really are a once in a lifetime kind of thing. That was the piano from 1993. Um, I love that I've introduced you to all these new movies. Yeah, all three. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and I've honestly loved them all. Before we jump to the last movie that changed your life, uh, I do just need to say something on a personal note. I know a lot of people, uh, they, you know, they saw you first when they watched Firefly back in 2002. But for me, uh, it was on one of the greatest, if not the greatest teen drama of all time, The O.C., where you play <laughs> Maya Griffin uh, in a couple of three wow. or four episode story arc. Uh, and then you later go on and uh, marry the star of the OC, Benjamin McKenzie. Uh, but you two um, never met on on the set of the OC, correct? Not really. Um, 
you're, I have to say, the first interviewer to ever ask me about that character. Thank you. So congratulations I, I to take, you. I take um, that as a badge of honor because <laughs> I, I'm rewatching the OC right now. It's on HBO Max. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw him coming out of his trailer and introduced myself and he was really not very interested and did not give me the time of day, which I still make fun of him for. Um, we, you know, he could have had me in my prime instead of we met when I was 37. So, um, we did have, we were in the same party, I think at one point, but did not interact with each other. So we had no scenes together. Got it. And then yeah. all those years later, you reconnect in Gotham and look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for uh, appeasing me and my OC fandom. Of course. Uh, I'm sure anyone else listening to this around my age will appreciate the call out as well. <laughs> <laughs> A very impactful movie uh, or show uh, in, in my youth. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, um, let's get to your last pick. And thank you so much for showing me this. Like, seriously, The Second Mother from 2015. This is a 7.8 out of 10 um, with 12,000 ratings on IMDb. Uh, it is written, and you're going to have to help me with these pronunciations, please, yes. when I inevitably <laughs> get the Portuguese or Brazilian pronunciations wrong. So this is written and directed by Anna. Anna, uh, I have a hard time too. Moya Yert. Moya Yert, okay. And the starring yes. Regina Case or Case? Regina Case. <laughs> Okay, okay. So sorry, <laughs> Regina Casse, uh, Mihe- oh God, I can't even say. Uh, Mikhail, yeah, I have to pull. I have to pull up. The yeah, name pull, pull them up. You can do them with me, and then I'll have to remember these. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, cast: Regina Casse, Michelle Joelsas, Camila Mardula, Karine Telles, Lorenzo Mutarelli, and Elena Albergaria. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thank you for that. And 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 the story here uh, is when the estranged daughter of a hardworking live-in housekeeper suddenly appears, the unspoken class barriers that exist within the home are thrown into disarray. Um, I had never seen this movie. I had never heard of this movie. This is a perfect 10, 10 for me. Like it, I, I was so moved um, by, by this film. Like mm. and uh, Regina Case, uh, Regi- yeah. or Regina Case, if you're looking at it phonetically, if you're wondering who I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, uh, is 
unbelievable. Like one of my favorite performances I think I, I've seen. Like she is so, so good. And I want to go back and watch all of her films. I, I totally agree with you. I, I love introducing people to this movie because most people, especially in the US, have not seen it. Um, and she, Regina Cazette is a huge star in Brazil and typically does these very sort of like loud, boisterous, mm. sexy parts. If you look her up, she's usually in a ton of makeup and just this like larger than life, beautiful woman. And when I went to see the film, I, I grew up watching her in soap operas and in films in Brazil, and I did not recognize her. Mm. I had to look up who the cast members were. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's her. <laughs> like, I did not recognize her. Um, and I love that so much, just being able to completely immerse yourself in a story. Um, so this came out obviously, uh, 2015, so much more recent relative to your other picks. Um, what, what made this movie stand out to you so much to be like a recent, like life-changing film? Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up a little bit in Brazil. I, I moved to New York when I was 10, but went back often to my, to my family and friends there. Um, it is a very Brazilian film in the sense that if you are anywhere from like middle to upper class in Brazil, you have a live-in nanny and you have that person who is your everything. They do your housekeeping, they buy your food, they iron your clothes and wash your clothes. They literally do everything and raise your children. And, um, some families are closer to their live-in housekeeper than, than, than others, um, we did not have one growing up. I was, I, I was from a poorer family. Uh, we had more like babysitters or people who would, my mom could occasionally afford to be with us, but it's a very cultural experience to have a live in and they stay with you all week and occasionally go home on a Sunday to see their family. They usually have kids that they are raising. Um, and it's just a, it's such a crazy cultural, um, sort of like an antiquity, like how, you know, I, I don't know how that model of living still works for a lot of people. Uh, but I just love this idea that this woman becomes the mother and becomes closer to her children than the actual mother and um, is so, you know, is a member of the family that is unspoken, you know, that is not recognized by the actual patriarch of the family and the matriarch of the family like it's it's, she's overlooked constantly and kind of seen as whatever but really is this just this central figure for for the children yeah i I think something that connected with me just in terms of that part of the film as well is that um so i'm filipino and Mm. the the, there's a very similar um you know live-in uh, babysitter, live-in housekeeper in in the Philippines. If you're, you'd, like you said, middle upper class in the Philippines, right. a similar thing. So when I would go home uh, and visit my family uh, in Manila, like that, I've seen that like in real life a lot, um, and it's right. something that I think is captured so well um, in the second mother. Cause I think when, when people hear the term like live in housekeeper, like there's a lot of negative connotations, like immediately yes. set with it. Um, which I think obviously there, there are plenty of stories where that happens, but at least like in my experience, um, it was never like that. And so seeing it portrayed in like a loving way where, especially her relationship with, um, the son, um, uh, yeah, it's so beautiful. Fabino, like it's really beautiful. Like, I mean, like she said, she's closer with Fabino than he is with his real mother. And, you know, there are these loving relationships and it is complex and there are like so many, uh, you know, social and economic like conversations to have about it, but it's, it's captured so, so well in this movie and it's not pandering. 
Um, nothing seems to be like he's not. They're not trying to teach like a lesson of like this needs to change or something like that. It's just totally. kind of placed it's out just there. The reality. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's really really amazing. When I was watching it, I, I put down my notebook for when I usually take notes of what I'm like want to talk about with uh, the guests. Um, and I stopped because it, it was I was so enthralled by this movie. Uh, you know, when you watch it, did it sort of like take you back to to living in in Brazil at all? A little bit, yeah. I mean, the city and. I think in the film they're in Sao Paulo, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. yep. um, and I grew up in Rio, so a little bit different landscapes. But um, just the the, cult, the cultural dynamics, the the family dynamics, um, the you know that 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 thing of like waking up in the morning and your breakfast is on the table right. for you, you know, and like right. um, it just really brought back a lot, a lot of memories. And and you know her. Um, Regina Cazes' character, you know, has her own daughter who then, of course, right. um, that spawns the, the B storyline where she's sort of having this flirtatious relationship with, with, the, with the husband, with the, um, but, you know, just that she's got her own life and her own um, pain and her own stuff that like has, there's no space for that in that house. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just remember very much like as our our family, you know, being very open and 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 then seeing my friends who had their nannies and drivers and people mm -hmm. picking them up from school and like a staff and just how separate that felt from their life. Um, you said you love showing this movie to people. Uh, what what are your when you show this to friends uh, or people or tell people to watch the movie? Like. What are some typical reactions you get when, when um, they talk to you about it afterwards? Uh, pretty much what you said, you know, that it's so touching and it's so emotionally, um, you really connect with it and uh, it's got just amazing subject matter and, and that it's not a political statement. Mm -hmm. You know, it is just sort, sort of like a slice of life where, where this is, but it does make you think about all of those things. Um, and a lot of people, I think, don't know the complexities of Brazilian cinema. You know, yeah. I think the, there have been very few films that have been, that have been put on the radar. Central Station was a huge one that ended up getting an Academy Award and that's very rare. City but of God also. City of God. Um, you know, there's only been a handful. Um, and I feel like it's always really rewarding to kind of like point out that like my country is also making some really, really incredible films. There are so many moments where again, um, uh, Val, uh, her character, lead character, she has like, like the moments of victory that come through her life or through like the uh -huh. little slice of life part is so is, is the really beautiful moments. And my favorite thing is when, um, towards the end of the film where she has the thermos and espresso cup, um, mm. she finally gets to use them and, I like mm -hmm. was like almost brought to tears when she like brought that out and she's saying, look, it's modern, the black and white. Like yeah. it's really like, it was so beautiful because it shows like her growth as like, I can, you know, I'm taking what I want. I want to do what I want, but it's also sure showing her the like, you know, I'm proud of what I was, you know, bringing to this family and I'm still proud of it. What are other standout moments for you, whether it's about Val or about uh, Jessica, who is her daughter or any other parts yeah. that stand out to you? In I, sense? I, there are a few. I really simple moments like when the son wakes up in her bed often mm, in the morning mm -hmm. in, the, in the housekeeper's bed instead of the mother's bed because he had a nightmare or whatever, yeah. or he just enjoys cuddling with her. Like he just wants a maternal yeah. 
you know, connection. Yeah, and the mom just like doesn't do it. And there are so many moments where the mom tries a little too late to connect with her children and it's just not with her, her son and it's just not it doesn't happen. She missed her in the boat in that way. You know, when her daughter comes and like all those uncomfortable moments where she's, she knows her place and she knows what is appropriate and, and what is comfortable for the family. And her daughter is just sort of like messing it all up or pushing all the buttons mm-hmm. or, you know, whether sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's unconscious, like, and she's somewhat embarrassed, but at the same time, so uncomfortable. And like, I just love that dynamic of like the, the hierarchy, the classes. And the relationship with Jessica and Val, the mother-daughter, it's like sort of, I'm, I'm assuming, representative of the younger generation sort of trying yeah. to tell the, the you know, um, helping class, you know, their parents, if they're working in the working class generation, like, you got to break out of this, like, you don't need this, right? Yeah. I'm assuming that's sort of like the, the commentary there. Yeah, it is. Although I will say that in a lot of the upper class families, um, the housekeepers will train their children mm. or daughter or whoever to then take over the job for them. Right. So it's still very much cyclical a cycle. Right. Yeah. Um, there are a few that break out. I mean, that family I think specifically is not super rich, you know, right. they're sort of more of like a middle class. Right. Um, so, so, so they're a little more lenient. They're a little bit more hip, mm-hmm. you know, but you still really feel it's very palpable. The everybody's place yeah. in the house. Oh, we were seriously such a such a beautiful movie. I, I really am cool. grateful you showed me this. This was uh, the second mother from 2015. Um, it's available on Prime Video. Uh, so if you have a Prime Video account, you can watch it there for free. And even if not, I recommend hunting it down because it is seriously so good. So Lawrence of Arabia, The Piano, and The Second Mother are the three movies that change your life. Uh, do you see a through line connecting uh, these three films together as to why you chose them? when somebody asks I am one of those people that like when you say what's your favorite movie or what's your favorite book or what I blank I draw yeah, a total blank totally. so I'm so glad that it was like via email and I could think <laughs> about it for a few days um, and I had to be prodded to remind to be reminded to send the list right. um, and I just went back to like what are the the moments in time that I remember that I have like the most consciousness of and like that things were like felt like they shifted the most for me so maybe that's the through line is like when I watched Lawrence of Arabia, I remember a big aha moment, a big like, wow, okay, this is what cinema could be. And then when I watched The Piano, I had this like emotional, you know, sort of visceral reaction to it of like, this is what I want to do. Um, and then when I watched The Second Mother, I, I had this other moment of like, wow, like a small, simple film can have such a huge impact. And again, like this is something that I want to do. Um so I guess that would be the through line, which is like they they embody in very different ways what film can do in varying budget levels mm-hmm. and sub topics and acting uh, uh, styles, international uh, praise, international, I mean, yeah. yeah. And like I just feel like that is the beauty of what I do for a living is like it, there are there are endless possibilities for like how you format it, but to have a, an emotional connection to a film is really special. Beautifully said. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much again for talking today. So we have Greenland coming out and a soon to be announced date. Uh, again, it is a wild uh, action thriller, apocalyptic end of the world movie. Uh, you star alongside Gerard Butler. Was there anything else you wanted to say um, about that? 
No, I mean, I think it's one of those films that, you know, doesn't disappoint. It's a thrilling ride. I don't think I took a breath for about 45 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, 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 <laughs> I need a break. Um, so I think it's it'll be enjoyable as those teeth gritting films are. Um, go check it out. Thank you so much. Uh, thank I, you. I that was fun. To, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Um, yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you for these three films. And uh, stay safe out there. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. You too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to check out IMDb's That Scene with Dan Patrick exclusively on Amazon Music for your IMDb podcast fix while we're on a season break. And be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on Morena and to easily add the movies that changed her life to your IMDb watch list. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.